Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is episode 35, and it was recorded on Thursday, January 23rd, 2020. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Vitreo Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. This is our second episode of season four. We were joined by Suzanne Duncan, a professor at Ryerson University, and Susan Story, a partner at KCI Philanthropy. Our topic, philanthropic naming and sponsorship naming rights. Naming buildings, spaces, and programs to recognize gifts by donors is not new. The Romans were doing it, and we are still doing it. But it has only been in recent years that the process, the policies, and the practice have been given more attention, more thought, and more rigor. Today, naming is much more sophisticated and professionalized than at any time in history. Join us as we take a journey through this new naming landscape. It's time for the Brain Trust Philanthropy Podcast. Welcome to Season 4 and Episode 35 of Brain Trust Philanthropy Powered by Betrayal. This is our second episode of 2020. Our topic, Philanthropic Naming and Sponsorship Naming Rights. We have two amazing nonprofit leaders with us today, both with significant experience with naming and naming rights. They're excited to be here. I'm excited to be here. Let's get started. First, joining us from Toronto, we have Susan Story. Susan is a partner with KCI Philanthropy. KCI Philanthropy, for those who don't know, is a consultancy serving Canada's nonprofit sector with professionals across the country in fundraising, strategy, research and analytics, and executive search. This is Susan's first podcast ever. Thank you for making Brain Trust Philanthropy your first. Welcome to the podcast, Susan. Thanks very much. Delighted to be here. <laughs> Susan and I have known each other almost all of our professional lives. Currently, we serve on the AFP Foundation for Philanthropy Canada. Susan is the chair, and I am the treasurer, or as I like to say, her treasurer. Susan, I'm thrilled that you have agreed to join us on our podcast. You have and continue to serve on a number of nonprofit boards. Thank you for that. Related to that, and before we get to your thoughts on today's topic, I saw from your LinkedIn profile that you're a board member for Badminton Canada. That seems pretty cool, actually. Can you share with us a bit about what brought you to that board, and, and what are the biggest issues for, for Badminton in Canada? Oh, it's a good, good, wonderful to to be here, and um, yeah, I'm. It, it's something that challenges me in a in a different way. Um, yeah, I actually played badminton for a number of years growing up. It kind of kept me out of trouble in my my teens. I was never that good, um, but always, uh, you know, it was a big part of my life, and so I really enjoyed it. And so it, it's interesting, particularly this year. It's a it's an Olympic year, 2020 Tokyo, and and I'm yeah. a lot about yeah. It's a it's a big year, and we have some some incredible athletes, both in terms of able bodied badminton but also para badminton in Canada so we're we're quite excited about what's to, what's to come this summer um, but um, you know it challenges me in a different way I mean sports funding and I think the biggest challenges that they have is, is funding and being able to invest in high performance athletes um, but uh, it's a lot of fun it's a fantastic board a, a great group including a couple Olympians themselves from back in the day and um, so I'm among great company and it's just a terrific sport I can't think of anybody who didn't at least at one point in, in school have a badminton racket in their hand and the gym so I know a lot of people really enjoy it 
I, I, I was, I'm glad that you talked about that in that way. And, and I had, I didn't forget that it was an Olympic year, but I'm glad that you reminded us. And I have had a chance to work uh, occasionally with some Olympians and it's just, it's, it's a step up experience to be working with folks like that. So that's awesome. Thanks, Thanks Susan. Next, also joining us from Toronto, we have Suzanne Duncan. Suzanne is an instructor at Ryerson University and was most recently leading donor relations at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health CAMH Foundation. This is Suzanne's third visit to the podcast. She first joined us in season two on our episode about gratitude and then again in season three on our episode about mental health for fundraisers. Suzanne, welcome back. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yay! Suzanne and I first met when we did a big donor recognition project at CAMH. Since then, she and I have co-presented on naming at two conferences, and if we're lucky, we will be reprising our highly ranked presentation at a conference or two in 2020. Stay tuned. But before we pick your, your brain on naming Suzanne, I see that you are also interested in or working on a gala for something called, is it Archives? Yeah, tell yeah. Us about, tell us about that. Yeah, I've been a volunteer with the Archives for two years now. Um, the Archives is the largest LGBTQ2 plus archive in Canada, and it collects the stories um, that are really, really important to this movement. Um, and I, uh, I have been enjoying going to their gala uh, over the past couple of years, and last year got to join the committee, and I get to just do crafts for it, which is really delightful. So I, I'm in the middle of prototyping centerpieces right now, uh, and last year we had a sellout audience, excellent, excellent decor, a wonderful evening wonderful volunteers we raised a ton of money we sold out and it's really the you know we it's a costume dance party at the library which is just the best time you're going to have on a cold day in march that's awesome now which library oh at the uh we do it at the toronto reference library okay that's awesome yeah. so a costume party yeah. at the toronto reference library yeah now, the I've theme never, I, go ahead okay Oh, I was going to say the theme this year is kaleidoscope. So everything's all about movement and colors and patterns and shifting perspectives. So it's um, my husband volunteers with me and, and looks after some of the creative. And we've just really, really been having a fun time pulling this all together. When's this year's gala? Mm. Great question. March 28th. Uh, tickets are available yeah. if you are interested in, we, we dance till 2 a.m. So it's a sit down dinner followed by a long night of DJ dancing. Uh, so if you're interested in a great, uh, great way to support the community, uh, I highly suggest getting tickets. So Susan, we might have to, you know, figure that out so that we can join yeah. Suzanne at this party. This is going to be awesome. I, I, uh, I haven't seen 2 a.m. in a long time, but <laughs> <laughs> it's not mandatory. <laughs> well, you but know, there, there's always, there's always time for a reprise, right? You can always go back and yeah. do what you want. So. Um, I love the fact that there's an archive for um, mm -hmm. the LGBTQ community. Um, yeah. I didn't realize that there was a, a big archive. Now in Calgary, one of my 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 close friends, um, Kevin Allen, he started a project called the Gay History of Calgary, and mm. actually did a, bo a book. And he uh, he did a Kickstarter, and there's a number of us that helped fund that. It was such a great project, and it really oh, took fantastic. off, and it was super interesting to you know find out uh, about that history in Calgary. Yeah. So I'm glad that there's yeah. an archives. Maybe the book will show up in the archives, or is it's it just probably is it Toronto, there, yeah. or is it, or is it like, is a Canadian all archive? All across Canada, all across Canada. Oh. This year, we're raising money to expand the collections to underrepresented communities, including two spirited and trans communities, uh, to really nice. make sure that all the voices are really heard through that. That's great. 
how fun is that? Um, and, yeah. and of course, you get to scratch your crafting itch, so that's awesome. It's, oh, I have such an itch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get started. Thank you for joining us on this, our 35th podcast. Today's topic, uh, philanthropic naming and sponsorship naming rights. I have to admit, I have been asked to do this podcast for a long time. Philanthropic naming is very much in my wheelhouse and an area I've been keenly interested in for all of my professional career. So a bit of a heads up. I'm likely going to participate in this conversation a little more than I usually do on this podcast. You've been warned. Uh, donor recognition through naming is not new. In fact, it's been around for thousands of years. But it's only been in the last 15 years or so that donors, fundraisers, board members, and even the general public have, have demanded that the process, the policies, and the practice be given more attention, more thought, and more rigor. Publicly announcing a naming gift is as much about brand as it is about donor recognition. And that's where it gets really interesting. Is naming complex? You bet. Can it get complicated? Sometimes. Are there ways to reduce the complexity and to avoid or mitigate complications? Well, that's what we're here to find out. Suzanne, let's kick this off with you. If you had to pick one or two of the biggest challenges or issues in naming, what would they be? Um, to me, it really boils down to issues that are around balancing the needs of the organization, its future, its growth, with that tremendous impulse to leave a legacy and to have something that lives in perpetuity. And you're sort of naming sits at one of those really tangible moments in a donor's generosity. And you want to do right by the donor. And you also want to make sure that, you know, your successor, somebody 10 years down the road, 20 or 30 years down the road is really set up for success as well. So it's a really complicated balance there and one that we're seeing played out more and more. Um, the thing that I also think a lot about is a sort of idea of commensurateness. Um, and don't, our donors are more connected to each other than they've ever been before, and they're very aware of who's giving and how they're being recognized. And how do you layer into that commensurateness and making sure you're being really fair? How do you quantify volunteer experience? How do you quantify those champions who've been with you for a really long time to be able to make sure you're recognizing them in a really special way, but not setting yourself up to have to recognize everyone in that same special way. So that, that all of those, those balances, I think, uh, really underpin a lot of the challenges in naming. Okay. So the intersection between, um, uh, this big growth at the organization, our big campaigns mm -hmm. and the, and the needs for legacy, and then this mm -hmm. complicated balance of matching the past with the future. Um, and mm -hmm. then a new word, apparently, commensurateness. Oh, that's my favorite word, commensurate. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's well, awesome. Susan, Susan, what do you think? Yeah, I think I certainly agree with those points. I think, I mean, the, the biggest worry that um, organizations tend to have is this, you know, the subject of influence and, and how much control will the donor, you know, have and, and how do you, you know, sort of bring that forward as you're having the kind of discussions that you want to have with a donor, you, you know, and they're even more... Uh, prevalent if the organization is going to carry the donor's name as a whole. So I think that's a, an issue. I think the other one that I consider to be a bit of a challenge is small organizations who, you know, may undervalue their um, opportunities and, and are, you know, so so keen and excited and, and needing um, support that they'll, they'll they'll jump on a gift of the magnitude they've never seen before without, you know, really reflecting on, you know, the value of their mission and, and um, how they should be considering 
um, the opportunity for an individual or corporation or, or other funder to be aligned with that mission. So, um, you know, I've seen some recent examples of that where, where you know, small charities are just so excited about the biggest gift they've ever had, um, but, uh, you know, aren't, you know, need, need to sort of pause and thoughtfully reflect on, you know, what, what other opportunities might there be for naming besides sort of giving away everything um, and, and perhaps undervaluing the, the scope of their mission. Yeah, that was actually the doorway I walked through um, early in my experience around naming, which was about you know 15 years ago, was that I was sitting on a board um, where they um, they really want to recognize a significant gift, and it was significant. Um, but uh, but in the future, I could see that there might be other gifts of that level, and in the past, and they 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 at the time they were looking at their single largest opportunity, which was the theater. And, uh, and, and using that to have as the recognition and not that it was wrong or right, but, um, we did, we did eventually get around to a conversation about exploring the whole framework of naming, uh, what the opportunities might be as opposed to just that one piece, which is super interesting. Um, I'm curious though, if we could dig into this influence question, um, the, because it, it's the one where, um, the general public really has a particular view on naming. Um, uh, uh, not always a favorable view. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, sorry, I think um, I think that you know, it's, sometimes it's a it's a legitimate concern, and and you know, and other times it's it's more just a a question of having the right kind of conversation with the donor at the start about what is their intent. Um, and I think sometimes you know, we we for all the right reasons move right into sort of the mechanics of of a gift and what what it's going to be, how it's going to be structured, and you know, how long the pledge periods are going to be, and what the recognition will be, um, and the importance of sorry having that pause moment with the donor to really understand what their intent is for that gift so you know is their intent to you know establish a, a, a place where students can convene and learn for decades to come and and if so um, that sort of defines what the scope of influence you know is and, and reduces concerns in that regard and so um, I mean I think there's certainly been examples uh, where where the influence has perhaps been um, too extensive or there's concern about it but I think it starts right with that um, really understanding what the uh, donor's intent is that's key um, and even the idea of having a donor write a statement to start as to what is their intention for this gift is almost the first precursor to discussions about what might be the right kind of recognition or naming opportunity for that donor mm-hmm. Suzanne? I think, yeah I think often um, it's really tempting to lead with the naming opportunity and not with the mission and the impact and that can get you into all sorts of challenges around where does the line of donor influence start and end? Like if, if what you're selling or what you're putting in front of them is really focused on the space and the naming, then you end up in conversations with them that may not be appropriate around like color of the walls or how things are going to look. And then you get into those challenges of commensurateness, um, where when you're starting from a real mission alignment and purpose alignment, it's often easier to have those conversations down the road because they're grounded in that mutual impact that you know you can achieve through that gift. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. I, I agree with completely with, with um, everything that's been said. I, I am. It's interesting to see that there's still a perception, though, and it's most often um, played out publicly on, um, on our campuses when students feel uh, that they, that, that a particular naming isn't, uh, the where, where they would like it to be. So uh, more often than not, it's a perception, I would suggest. 
Um, but the, but it does get played out and it gets a bit of media attention where the students are uh, rebelling against uh, uh, having something named. And so that, that perception piece is really critical. And I think sometimes we miss the boat on on um, uh, really talking to the stakeholders about how this is mission forward. Mm-hmm. So, well, and I, I think, think consultation is so important. Um, there's, you know, great examples of times either here or in the U.S. where the the people who believed the most in the organization didn't feel like they were properly consulted. And so that name came as, you know, not the celebration that it should be of somebody's amazing generosity, but it came as a bit of an affront and a question of why, why am I hearing about this now or why wasn't I part of that consultation? I think we sometimes underestimate how connected our students, our patients, um, our stakeholder group is to the names and to the spaces that are part of those charities. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I, um, I think a couple of other things, like I, I think um, sometimes as well, we, we tend to, even when announcing uh, gifts, we, we focus on the, you know, the, the, the obviously the donor and the, the naming and sometimes the, the, val- the amount of the, the gift, um, but reminding ourselves to always lead with, you know, what is the impact that this donation mm-hmm. will have? I mean, it, it could be a game changer for the organization. Sometimes it's part of a, you know, refresh of brand at a, at a time that's really important. You know, sometimes it can trigger other donations that are, are going to to, um, you know, and, and attract new support. So I think, uh, you know, I, again, it's sort of keeping that top of mind about sort of start with the why, you know, why are we doing this as opposed to how and what the, the recognition might be. Um, it sounds simple, but, uh, you know, oftentimes we get right into the excitement about the, the gift and, and what it means and, and um, you, you know, pay, pay second shift to really what is the impact of the funds that have been donated and that the, the naming is really a, 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 a tribute um, in relation to, to that impact. Absolutely. Suzanne, there's a story you have, and I know the story because we talked about it. I don't know if you're uh, able to share it in more detail about um, how you were kind of forced in one instance um, uh, to have a longer internal conversation before you announced the gift because um, it, the automatic perception it was, a, it was a major philanthropic family. It was also the name of a major beer company. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. Um, when I was at uh, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, um, obviously there's a lot of sensitivity around gifts that are attached to alcohol or to pharmacy or to um, gambling. Um, so we would do, you know, sort of our, our thought through that was, you know, recognition is only as good as gift acceptance. So doing that rigor at the beginning to really understand what's the risk that this particular gift may do to the brand of the organization and also trying to be the type of inclusive organization that recognizes that people of all, you know, all different walks of life live with mental health and addiction issues and are, regardless of where those funds have come from, um, are equally committed to solving this. So we, we really looked at things from a risk perspective. Um, and in the case of the Labatt's, which was um, one of our early namings, um, the Labatt's had been such long-term volunteers and had been such um, great champions of mental health and had really their own personal experiences of this that we were able to come with some really great messaging in those announcements that really uh, helped people understand that this wasn't about a beer company naming something. This was about a family that had been profoundly affected by mental health, um, really showing their generosity and showing the community what kind of support was able to be given to that to that area. 
And that was a very early gift for that organization as well. Uh, It was before anyone wanted to put names on anything associated with mental health. So it was one of those gifts that really started a larger conversation about more public giving in a pretty stigmatized area. Right. But the messaging internally was obviously a big part of this piece before you could announce this gift. Right. Yeah. That story is great. Why why Labatt and why Labatt family? And and when I say internally, I don't just mean with staff, but also with patients um, and also right. through patient empowerment councils and groups like that to really help understand where our blind spots might be in how this might be perceived. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do know that with boards, it's one of the biggest conversations I have with them at the beginning of a naming conversation is, um, you know, uh, what what is the reason for undertaking donor recognition through naming? As as uh, and 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 the worst reason is because um, uh, we need money and they want recognition because um, uh, that doesn't play well publicly. Um, yeah. And so even though that might actually be um, in some cases uh, some motivation, it hasn't been the majority in my experience. I don't know about mm-hmm. yours, Susan, but um, but uh, it it uh, it has to be first uh, that an alignment of values, I think. Um, and uh, and if you can show that. Uh, you tend to do better. Yeah, and I, I, mean, I think there's a lot more, obviously there's a lot more pressure that organizations are, are seeing and so the, the pressure to, um, you know, seek out larger gifts and to, to be able to, you know, address budget crunches and, and mm-hmm. you know, naming and recognition is, is seen to be attractive to, to obviously, um, you know, many donors. And so I think organizations mm-hmm. in some cases can knee-jerk to, to respond to that. Um, and I think sometimes they, they also assume that it's, um, you know, for sure we'll be able to find someone who will want to put a name on on this particular piece, and so they lose sight of again that that focus of of, an, of intent. Um, sometimes I think we rush too too quickly to think about recognition naming in terms of you know the forever yeah. clock on the wall and <laughs> put the forever yeah. clock on the wall. Like I think we can be creative, and you know we've seen some interesting organizations you know, organizations being creative. So you know whether it's a a zoo that you know and, and there's a real example you know that had an interest and in the donor wanted to name the, the animals in this particular exhibit that, that uh, they were funding. Um, and so I think I think there's some different things that need to come into the uh, question as opposed to just right away thinking about, or, or sometimes I think organizations um, put themselves down and say, well, we don't have a wing of a hospital to name, so we can't compete with, you know, the hospital foundations, et cetera, when it comes to major gifts or to donors. And, and so I think it's, you know, not every organization has capital assets that are going to have the kind of, public interest in in having a, a, a named recognition and so those organizations have to be you know creative about uh, ways in which they can pay tribute to donors whether that's through you know endowment funds or or special experiences or um, you know other ways of, of celebrating donor support in a in a tangible visible way mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. two things i wanted to pull out of that and deal with maybe we can deal with them as a group uh in in in, in two stages the first one was um that idea that uh I, I don't think we, well, I always advise fundraisers when I'm speaking to them about naming that don't lead with naming. Listen <laughs> for what, what the donor's looking for in terms of recognition or needs. Don't just put it on the table because it's a, it's a tool that gets you the sale. Um, and so you, you kind of don't lead with it and then you'll end up with better outcomes. You obviously a professional organization that has capital assets and things like that should have them. So that's one of the things. The second one was you used the word forever plaque. So I want to get to term in a minute. Um, or we can go there now. Um, which mm-hmm. way do you guys want to go? Hmm. 
Suzanne, you can decide that one. <laughs> yeah, do you want, do you well, want to talk about the fact? But, go let's ahead. Let's talk about forever. Let's talk yeah. about forever. Yeah, because <laughs> you said use the forever plaque, and I knew what you meant. That's so romantic. Uh, we all know what you meant. You, you use quotation marks forever. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so uh, what, what's been your experience or what's been uh, your your uh, um, uh, 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 thoughts on this um, idea of how long naming should be? What's the trends? Uh, mm-hmm. what, what are you mm-hmm. seeing and what are donors expecting, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is one of those spaces where, you know, we are so thankful to have so many major gift donors um, supporting organizations. And I think there's more major gift donors and more attention on major gift donors who carry with them some naming expectations than ever before. Um, and But there's still a history even for those specific donors, of being able to name something in perpetuity. And I think there's this idea about the, uh, you know, this is my legacy, and I want to see this name live past me, past the, my children, past my grandchildren. And it's rooted in, you know, hundreds of years of that kind of experience. But as we have seen more competition, as we've seen um, the sector professionalize, all of those things, that's just at odds with what is practical in, you know, in a hospital environment or in a university environment. So trying to get folks to that place is challenging. Um, I agree completely with looking at other opportunities, ways to engage the families in different ways, ways to recognize them in ways that aren't about a plaque or a name that will last forever. But there is still that impulse that I find in a lot of folks for that foreverness. And I think that's one of the nuts to crack, one of the big sort of philosophical nuts to crack around naming is how do we deliver this sense of permanency and and legacy at the same time as being really responsible to what we can actually practically deliver? Because we are, you know, signing agreements that are legal agreements. We want to be able to deliver on what we're saying. So trying to bring those two balances together is is really important. And I agree, I think what you had said about starting the conversation around mission and impact is what helps folks come along to that. Um, but I, I really do think there's still this craving of permanency that we as a sector need to figure out how to how to tackle in a way that continues to be meaningful for donors. Yeah, I think it's a, one of the number one issues that organizations look at. And I, I think you're so right that it is something we're still seeing sort of a bit all over the map um, in terms of whether organizations are having uh, some form of term limited or life of the building or 25 years or whatever it is that they're they're creating in terms of, of that. But there is this desire for, for um, legacy and, and permanence, particularly with individual donors. So obviously on the corporate side, there's, you know, sponsorship rights versus, you know, the, the kind of traditional philanthropic naming we might see with individuals. And so there's certainly, uh, you know, a stronger expectation among sponsorship rights and corporations to have it be term limited um, but uh, it, it is it is a bit of a, a bit of a challenge and I've seen organizations um, make the move to say it'll be 20 years or the lifetime of the building um, and have been surprised themselves at the um, support that donors have had for that so we may see that change as well with 
generational shift because it, mm-hmm. you know, I think permanence has been, has been the way for decades. But for all the reasons you, you mentioned, Suzanne, um, I think there's a, a stronger appetite for, for donors to, to, to talk about that differently. And I also think we're doing a better job at involving donors and having deep conversations where you can explore these things um, oh, and no. they're asking questions. So I think that, that allows us at least to, to really help them understand, you know, some of the reasons or rationale why we, we might want to look at it differently than sort of the historical tradition of, of a, a permanent legacy meaning mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree I um, I'm, I'm, I'm so heartened to hear the comments that you've made and that's exactly been my experience in the marketplace we did a a, a a survey of naming policies for all the libraries in Canada and about um, well all the major cities in the US so it's a significant survey um, of naming policy survey and um, there all of them were moving towards uh, as the First for a some sort of term limit, uh, and they they varied, um, but all of them, without exception, had a grandfathering piece that said, you know, should the board choose to, it could be in perpetuity. Because at the end of the day, um, that surprise that you mentioned with donors, um, if that surprise is with a donor that can be educated and that doesn't impair the relationship, you, that's great. But if it's with your, <laughs> you know, a longtime donor, a very significant gift. It's a challenging conversation to go, yeah, but it's the life of the building. And, you know, they'll go, really? Right? You know, so you, I do know the boards need some flexibility, but the trend has been moving, and I'm hoping this next generation is going to be mindful of it. And they appear to be. Um, terms yeah, of it well with an entrepreneurial mindset, I think. I was going to say, I think where you sometimes there's also seen backlashes if the naming has actually been a tribute naming as opposed to for a for a donor as mm-hmm. well. Um, yeah. And you know, some some sort of when people have a strong passion for the, the name of the person who was given that tribute, um, you know, I think that's where you often also hear it. So, uh, you know, yeah. there's a sort of backlash to say, no, no, that's got to be a perpetual naming because it's yeah, not and, tri- and tribute, yeah. yeah, tributary and honorary names are are a whole other topic. Um, and I'm happy to talk about those because I, um, I think that they are uh, much, they, they're looked at differently. I, I like to say to groups, um, I ask them the question, um, and you can, you can kind of separate the, and this is not a, um, uh, this is not pejorative against people, uh, who feel this way. Um, but there are a, a certain group of fundraisers who, um, who, who don't like honorary namings because it takes, it takes opportunities out of the inventory. Um, uh, and then there's another group that, uh, that, that, that loves them. So I usually say to people, I say, you know, uh, if you don't have tributary namings at all, uh, or honorary namings at all, um, what does that say about your organization to the general public? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, usually people will come around to the fact that well, it says that we're all about the money. I said exactly. So, um, think about that in your, at least have something in your policy we recommend. So there's somebody comes along and reads your policy that it's there, that you, you have mm-hmm. the ability to do tributes. Uh, and 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 be part of the community and build history and tradition. The, the other thing I just I think that's um, in some, sometimes I think that people think that naming is more recent than it is, and and I, I and yeah. I think maybe it's because of the way we're telling <laughs> stories is different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Think about yeah. it, yeah. Like like Massey Hall in Toronto, yeah. an iconic yeah. iconic music hall. You know, they, they it was built by Hart Massey, whose philanthropy covered the cost of the original hall, and he had a very specific sort of vision about he wanted a you know secular meeting place where people from Toronto could meet and enjoy choral music that sort of wasn't of a religious theme at the time, and wanted to construct it in memory of his son. Um, and so. 
and you think and he also didn't want it to be a musical to make large profits. He wanted rich and poor to be able to attend these events, et cetera, and that once expenses were paid, his hope was that I think that the season of lectures would sell for probably less than five dollars or some very minor amount. And so when you think about an iconic building like that, and people don't really know why is it called Massey Hall, we just accept the fact that it's called Massey Hall. People don't realize that it actually, exactly. is, you know, tied to a philanthropic contribution. Um, and so I think now because we focus on the dollars first, a lot of times, not always, in terms of the storytelling, you know, big donation made, and so now we're naming it after after this person. We're 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 not really realizing. That, that that you know, as you said, as you said, I think at the, at the top, um, Vincent, it's been part of our, you know, the world global culture. But um, mm-hmm. I think we forget sometimes that some of the greatest landmarks that we just cherish and know them as as certain names that philanthropy is why they're there to begin with. Well, I love that you brought up Massey Hall because um, when you say Massey Hall, you, you there's a whole bunch of layers that Canadians um, uh, uh, will think about. <laughs> And, uh, and they think about Massey, they think about Toronto, they think about, um, uh, the, so there's a whole feeling associated with it. And actually, it's, it's a relatively positive upward feeling um, around Massey Hall. It's an important, iconic place. Um, and uh, yes, it has some legacy aspects to it. Yes, it's actually a naming. The Romans were naming things. You know, mm-hmm. so it, it's, it's, it, but, 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 but I agree with you. We do. And I think that leads back to mission forward, right? Like the, the, the impetus behind naming Massey call was a mission impact forward, uh, impetus. So I, I, I do wonder if we're doing ourselves a disservice sometimes by concentrating on, uh, you know, the headline being the dollars and the second piece being the naming. Well, and I think that ties into the whole, you know, reality that we as fundraisers have gotten really good at it. We need to get even better at at the storytelling, and and again, you mm-hmm. just say lead with mission, and you know, even just that that story of Massey Hall is not about how much he gave. I don't even think that <laughs> I know exactly how much was gave to, given. It, it, it doesn't great matter. Name. The hall. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It's the it's the story, right? So 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 maybe that's what we should be, um, you know, as really emphasizing. And even in the gift agreements, you know, starting with the notion of what is the the donor's you know statement of intent, um, mm-hmm. you know, starting with the story and then moving into the particulars, so that the gift agreement forever captures that story of of intent and and it's powerful, right? You know what? You know what's so interesting is. Um, I've seen so many gift agreements and I've, uh, and I've, and I've, I've looked at lots of policies and I made recommendations and policies to put language like that in, but not in gift agreements. That's a really good idea, Susan. Mm-hmm. I, I just made it up as we were thinking aloud. Now people are going to point in time going, Susan's sorry from KCI <laughs> on that podcast. Well, there's got to be a put this for, up, there, but, for me somewhere in there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, don't laugh. Um, there was a client that I gave some advice to and they, uh, they put the advice in their policies and referenced Duckworth <laughs> in the policy. And well, I, I did not know that. And I, I was reading the policies years later online or something. And I went, what? Yes. And, and you know what it is with policies. People look at them 10 years later and go, who made up that policy? So now that yeah, exactly. Well, I'm going to get away. But, 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 but more particularly, I don't want to make light of this, this idea of having the donor's, um, uh, mission intentions, impact intentions in the gift agreement, mm-hmm. I think is really important um, yeah. and, uh, and one that we should probably embrace uh, uh, as soon as possible. It's not hard to do and it forces no, the no. fundraisers and donor recognition people to have that conversation. 
well, mm-hmm. history too, because you, you, we all know we've all looked at some things that were named 15 years ago, and we're looking at what was the reason this? Who was this person? Oh yeah, they gave a bunch of money, but it's not a lot of money in today's standards. We've got bigger donors. You can go back yeah. to that and see <laughs> the, the story. There you go. Yeah, we've come up with yeah. a good yeah, idea. Yeah. <laughs> Probably a good idea. Yeah. Um, you know, which kind of leads into this next piece. Uh, I, it, I I don't want to throw um, um, uh, a, 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 any nation under the bus, but I have seen this happen in the U.S. a little more about uh, where I've actually gotten calls going, you know, we've got the name on the building, but we've got a bigger donor. How do we take that name off? Right. Right. Uh, so that like, right, you know, uh, you know, we, we got to make room for this new name. <laughs> so, no, I, 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 you know, I, 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 I. I'm curious about what people's thoughts are about that. Sometimes when I hear that, I wonder if the organization hasn't done a good job at leveraging the brand of that name. Because I think when you think about something like a Massey Hall, it would be almost unthought of that even if a bigger donor came forward, um, that that would be would be changed. Or you think about the big, you know, the, the Stollery Hospital or the Garen um, uh, Hospital Center as well. Like I think Schulich, you know, School of Business, Ivy School. Of mm-hmm. I think. It, it, when part of the value of naming once a decision's been made is how the organization uses it to build brand and profile and confidence and reputation mm-hmm. and whatever it is. And so when you hear about, you know, where it's an easy decision to sort of say, well, it's not an easy decision, but when they're, they're leaning in the direction of saying we've got a bigger donor, let's replace that, I, I wonder if they haven't really leveraged the, the value that can come from, you know, a, a name and a story. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, just a, a, a comment on that. Yeah, and and I um, in the work that 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 I have done in naming, uh, one of the things I like to do, and I never ask to do, but I always do it anyway, is I like to list the things that should never be renamed and why. Mm. <laughs> right. That's and, a great so idea. Can, right, uh, uh, and, and usually the why is because your brand will suffer a significant impairment, no matter how much money you get for it. Right, because people, the citizens will will just be furious, and you've seen that happen in various jurisdictions, uh, mm-hmm. uh, including with a hospital in Toronto. Yeah, right? yeah. which which actually caused some some unintended regulatory oversight uh, that was most recently removed. So, yeah. No, I think that's why. Oh, go, go ahead, ahead, Suzanne. Go ahead, Suzanne. Oh, I was just going to say that I think that's why that consultation piece is so important. I think. There's been times where fundraising has not been as um, enmeshed in the overall organizational decisions, and those days are over. So we need to be coming together from much more of a public relations perspective when it comes to naming, because these are the these are the outward indicators of the brand. So they need to really be um, in lockstep together, and you can't have decisions being made in a foundation. Um, that's not reflected in the organization that it's serving as well. Like you need to make sure that those pieces are tight together and that that consultation is happening. Absolutely. So we, um, we've had, uh, uh, there's been a couple of threads that have been popped up. I've kind of keeping a little bit of notes. We can go in a couple of different ways uh, to, to close out the sort of the last 10 to 15 minutes of this podcast. Uh, one is we can get a little practical. Uh, and by that, I mean, you know, what do you do when you don't have enough inventory or how do you name for bequests or, uh, you know, when do you, when, uh, oh, oh, how, how do you have to have the first pledge payment in? Or we can talk about, um, and we can talk about both, by the way, or we can talk about the differences between sponsorship and philanthropy and the nuances mm. between the two. Where do you guys want to go? 
Those are both. This time you, oh, yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, last time I think, Suzanne picked, I think people this time you should pick both. <laughs> okay, so where do you want to start? Touch on touch on both. I think is um mm-hmm. is is great because I think um you know when it comes to sort of the the practical pieces about inventory and other things. I mean, I, I think that I mean to to begin with um the importance of having a comprehensive plan and not looking at naming in isolation. So if you're building a a, a new building or you're looking at valuing a current space, you, you don't want to just say oh, we've got a donor, let's find a space and this looks good, let's offer this to them for half a million dollars. I think you really want to have an understanding of the full scope of those those assets so that you don't you know um, make quick decisions on the basis of a, a don't, don't imminent donor opportunity that then mm. cause challenges down the road. So I mean I think mm. just practically if I were to give one tip it would be you know really look at things in a comprehensive way, get a good understanding of what um, you have it in terms of physical capital property naming opportunities. Look at also your other recognition, um, you know, creative ways, whether it's funds or programs, et cetera, and, and create a, a pretty comprehensive strategy so that you're making informed decisions. And, and also, if you're working with volunteers, obviously, it, you, they need to be informed so that they're not well-meaning, uh, having a conversation with a donor and saying, well, I'm pretty sure we could, you know, find a naming opportunity in our, you know, most precious wing for for ten thousand dollars, so I think right. um, I think it's just the comprehensive <laughs> plan is really quite key to to have confidence in making decisions going forward, and and oftentimes then you're going to have sufficient inventory because it's been well thought out. So we know that our organization. That's a great response, Susan. Thank you. We know that our organizations are uh, dynamic and evolving, and there are opportunities for things to be uh, renovated, revamped, uh, uh, enlarged, uh, changed. What are some of the the practical aspects of 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 um, of a sort of consolidating uh, naming from the past uh, in a way that 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 really um, honors that without um, uh, keeping it on all the spaces? Um, and by I'm not looking at saying we need to remove a name to make room for a bigger donor. I'm talking about a renovation to a major space. There may have been some historic naming. There may be naming agreements. There may not be. Some of it may be tributary. Some of it may not be. Any thoughts or examples that you've seen in the marketplace um, on on how to properly handle that? Well, one of my favorite examples is the Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, which had mm-hmm. um, a lot of legacy naming. So tons of naming that went back 50, 60 years, often undocumented, um, and very large pieces. So big bronze stars that had um, donors uh, donor recognition on them. And it was not practical uh, in the renovation to maintain that. Uh, and they actually... Um, did some really great work there under uh, a woman named Jessica Veach who um, reached out to each one of those donors, plaqued each one of those stars, worked with them so that they could have that plaque in their home and understand how that legacy would continue through digital recognition in the new um, areas of Mount Sinai and really had that consultative conversation. And it took a lot of detective work to track folks down. It took a lot of really powerful conversations to bring all of that together. But the result is one of the most beautiful um, donor recognition systems that I've seen uh, in a hospital, really, really thoughtful and was able to bring donors who had been really interested in that permanency into the idea of a digital recognition um, space. Uh, and by also being really special and thoughtful with those original pieces and turning them into little mini works of art for the family to hold, that kind of helped bridge that 
um, emotional need that happens when those changes happen in, in an environment. Actually, what I love about that, on, go ahead, go okay, ahead, Susan, I, I'll, I'll okay, follow you. Pick up on that comment where you, you mentioned about family, and I think if we shift for a second away from capital naming as well, so when you, you know, universities in post-secondary have many of them real challenges, and the fact that they've got all, all these sort of underfunded endowment funds, and they, they you know, that have uh-huh. very specific criteria, and they can't give them away, but they're named after someone, and and it pre- presents a real challenge and pressure on operating budgets yeah. if they want to fulfill the obligations and all those kinds of things. So I think the notion as well that whenever you're having a donor who's going to be named with anything, um, building or not, you know, the extent to which you can involve the family and the discussions and the that intention piece so that if at any point you do, you know, have a, a valid reason to look at changing or shifting or the building's coming down or the, the fund needs to be collapsed because there's not enough income in it or what have you, you've got someone to be able to, to have outreach who is part of the conversation to, you know, if the donor is no longer, you know, available to, to, to speak with. So I think, um, you know, it's, and it's great fundraising technique, obviously, as well, at family philanthropy and, and engaging people, but I, I know for a lot of those endowment funds at the universities where, you know, no, nobody even knows the history as to how it came about and there's no additional contacts on file um, and they're, they're they're really in a tough position of, of, you know, ethically do you close the fund uh, when it carries someone's name and it has expectations or is there an opportunity to recast the purpose of those funds to be something more relevant? Mm-hmm. Well, I love the, the what I, I, I heard the practical outcome from the Mount Sinai um, story from Sinai Health, um, uh, uh, where um, uh, where they actually had you know what they did to digitize it. But what I felt was important is echoed with what Susan just said is the idea that consultation was involved. Yeah, because I think that that's what that's the story that starts to hit the street when you talk about what they're like, what's the organization like to work with. Other donors will talk about the fact that you know um, they actually talked to us. Uh, at the beginning, in the middle, uh, uh, you know, at the change points. And, uh, and that was a healthy, constructive, professional, thoughtful, emotional conversation. And that starts mm-hmm. to become your brand. And I think that's mm-hmm. a really important aspect that universities and health institutions and charities and nonprofits and libraries and all kinds of things can really start to pay attention to. Because sometimes people just think it is a problem. How do we fix this? Right. How do we how do we, you know, what's the practical outcome? Where do we put all the plaques? Um, and the real thing is the detective work and conversations and re, reigniting of relationships. So I think that's really interesting. Um, what about the quests or when do you start naming for pledges? So there's someone certainly says, been, someone, yeah. someone says uh, I, I um, you know, you know, uh, you know, uh, Suzanne, uh, we're, we're, uh, I got five million bucks in, in my will for you. Uh, what can you name mm-hmm. for me? Yeah, that's a great question, Vincent. Um, you know, I think one of the things also has to do with your organization and what you as an organization, um, think is most important to you. So, um, when I was at CAMH, one of the things that was highly important to us was getting naming up as quick as possible. And it was specifically in service to ending stigma because people really didn't want to associate their own name or the corporation's name with mental health 15, 20 years ago. Um, so we were, we made some strategic decisions when I was at CAMH around taking uh, and naming gifts 
very early in the pledge payment cycle or very early in a bequest conversation. Um, certainly, you know, when we're talking about non-revocable and all those things, like educated and smart um, decisions, but we did do that naming very early um, because it was key to helping us build the momentum that was needed for giving in that area. And since uh, since that those initial conversations maybe 10 years ago to today, they're, they're now thinking about what that pledge um, payment needs to be before a name goes up because the organization has seen the marketplace change around mental health and is now seeing that it can um, be a little bit more, uh, a little bit slower in the installation of naming because we don't have that same pressure to have that stigma busting moment. Um, I think uh, when I think about recognition, particularly naming pieces, it's a, you know, it's a thing and it will last. Um, and there's all of those pieces and it will be very exciting. But what you're actually creating is this moment, this tangible moment where a donor feels like you get me, you see me, we're together. I've brought my family. I've brought all these folks together. And that moment is the thing that you're hoping to create. So, um, you know, you need to weigh in your organization whether you can have that moment three years into the gift payment, whether you can have that moment at the beginning, where's the right stage for you? And it may be a celebration right at the beginning, and then a year or so later, you're installing the plaque, and that gives you the next moment for celebration. But you want to think these things out in terms of what are the moments that this donor will experience in your celebration of their generosity. So I know that's kind of a loose answer. Um, and certainly we want to protect our organizations from risk, but I think that organizations need to think in advance what their stance on these things are. Is it being driven from a worry about pledge non-fulfillment or is it being driven from a need to get a name up as quick as possible um, and really understand what's going to drive the strategy and the longevity of that organization? So Vincent, well, if, uh, you heard the you heard the pause you heard the pause when you asked about the quest, and I think part of the reason <laughs> I think by all of us, and I think part of the reason is because there there really is not um, any kind of well-defined best practice yet, at, at least that I've seen. But but I think it's starting to emerge because obviously as as the as sector gets more effective at talking about legacy giving, and as hopefully Canadians start to be um, more um, communicative about the fact that they've made a provision in their will, for example. I, I, I hope we'll see more of that, those conversations happening. Um, I am aware of some organizations that um, we've worked with where what's been it, look at the history of the donor first of all. What have you know in terms of their mm -hmm. relationship? Is it someone coming out of nowhere saying I'm going to leave you money in my will and? Please put my name on the, the building now. Um, obviously, that's going to be reflected versus a long-standing, committed uh, relationship. But um, often, what we've, we've been seeing is that there's still a conversation with the donor to say we will need 50% of your gift now before we do a naming and then the balance being in the provision. So if it's a million-dollar naming um, and it's a donor that they believe in, have, have long-standing history with, they might say to that particular donor, um, we would like to have half, half of that outright, you know, over the next five years or however you want to do it like you would normal major gift pledge. And then we'll essentially, you know, factor in the fact that you're going to give the other half million through your estate and we'll provide the, 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 the recognition opportunity. Either that or we see, um, you know, more obviously uh, – different space rather than naming a facility for a planned gift there's a legacy wall um, so it's more recognition mm -hmm. versus naming um, I think it's still yeah. more common yeah that's been my experience as well and I, I thank you for sharing those and what's interesting um, in that conversation was the fact that we 
uh, it's great to have this stuff in policy, and I am a big fan of it. And that's a whole other podcast on naming policy. But um, uh, it, we also have to be mindful about the agent stage of your organization, and that's what you were talking mm-hmm. about with CAMH. A CAMH at the beginning mm-hmm. of that campaign was really entering into the destigmatization of mental health, putting people's names up that people recognize, and identifying that with mental health was very important. And probably more mm-hmm. important than some fiduciary responsibility for saying, well, what happens if they don't pay? Um, so I think that's a really interesting conversation. And again, a whole other podcast. We're coming close to um, uh, where we might want to wrap it up. And I don't want to do a disservice to the differences. Some people are probably going, but what about sponsorship? So um, any of you want to weigh in on sp- on, on, the, on how they work together or how they don't work together or where, what you're seeing around sponsorship? And by that, I mean, uh, where typically it's a corporation or an entity as opposed to an individual who's making a contribution usually for a contract and not a, not a tax receipt. I think um, just keeping in mind the fact that you know, obviously sponsorship is, is, is different than a philanthropic name and the tax implications, the recognition, the brand, etc. It, it's surprising to me still how often we, we, we all still you know, occasionally get confused about how, you know, is this a sponsorship, is this a naming, is it a, a philanthropic gift? Um, and so I think just the key on that one is that, especially at the board level, because I think that's where probably the greatest confusion lies, is that, mm-hmm. again, having well-defined definitions of, of the um, distinct nature of those, it's going to help with both naming, but also tax receiving brand recognition. Do you use a logo? Do you not? Um, what are the terms around those arrangements? Um, and, and, and again, there's another level of sponsorship, which is not at all tied to necessarily naming rights. It's sponsorship paying for specific expenditures. Um, so there's, you know, it's a, it's the terms that we th- throw around a fair bit, um, and I think for every organization to kind of get a, a handle on it and determine the extent to which they're going to have a sponsorship program, um, or or really going to focus on philanthropy or a bit of both. Right. Mm-hmm. See that? But I think that's a Did podcast you know? in its own. <laughs> oh, without a doubt. And I, I just know <laughs> that I may get a few people going. You had the word sponsorship in the name, which we can change, by the way. But, yeah. But I just want to make sure that we, uh, some people. Um, uh, uh, we can, we have done other conversations about that. So Suzanne, maybe mm-hmm. you can take the last word if you want to on that, and then I'm going to close it up and give you each an opportunity to, to tell me um, what your favorite ice cream flavor is. <laughs> um, so now I'm thinking about ice cream. Um, for for sponsorship, what what I found really interesting is that the majority of the public knows about naming when it comes to sponsorship because they see their arenas, they see their mm-hmm. um, sports facilities, they see all the things. So they're bringing that lens to the naming of philanthropic things. Um, so even though we see them as very different um, internally, often externally, they can be perceived as the same. So that when you are naming a wing of a hospital or naming um, a, a, a shelter, people are thinking, well, that's just for sponsorship reasons. So I think it's it's one of those spaces, like so many in nonprofit, where we're trying to choose two different things with the same assets. Um, and the intentions behind those two different things certainly are mission-driven, but one is much more um, focused on marketing and and brand alignment, and one is more focused on personal alignment. Um, and then I find that many, you know, many of our donors now have a foot in both of those camps. So they're used to the negotiation of the marketing and are trying to apply some of that to the negotiation of the philanthropic. So I think um, regardless of what kind of fundraising you do in the organization, you need to be really 
thoughtful about the conversations that are happening around corporate sponsorship because that's how it looks from the outside to many. And that's also how many of your donors may have experienced naming conversations in the past. Suzanne, that was an excellent showstopper. I appreciate that. <laughs> and that's a, no, but it's a great nuance that uh, we need to remind that, that the general public does view naming as one big bucket. And yeah. we need to be mindful about how to help educate that, but be thoughtful about it and be also educated ourselves about it. So thanks for that. See, we got at least three other podcasts that I kept track of, and maybe five, um, both of which I would be happy to have either one of you back on. So you've been fantastic guests. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Thank you so much, Susan. Before we go, before we go, though, I want to give each of you an opportunity to tell us whatever, like where people can reach you or what you're up to or what's the biggest thing coming up in your lives in the next few weeks. Um, You can share your cat names if you'd like. Um, Let's start with you, Suzanne. Sure. Um, so my cats are Franklin and Lucy. I like tiger cat <laughs> ice cream. Um, <laughs> and, uh, really what's, what's coming for me is I actually leave on Friday for a wonderful two-week vacation to Panama um, where I'm going to be staying in a beach shack on a bioluminescent sea. I can't think of anything better to do in the middle of a cold winter. Um, and really, that's all I can think about right now. <laughs> well, that's awesome. And uh, by the time this comes out, you'll be probably back. Or at least on your way back uh, to some... and happy. Yes. <laughs> oh, awesome. Send a picture. We'll put it in the show notes. That's fantastic. Fair Thanks, enough. Susan, what do you want our audience to know? Uh, my cat's name is Norbert. My favorite ice cream is vanilla. Because um, <laughs> you can jazz it up. Um, but I am the proud chair of the AFP Foundation for Philanthropy Canada. And so that's uh, definitely a, a labor of love that keeps me busy in addition to my, my role with KCI. And, and I know that a number of your podcast listeners are, are, are donors to the foundation and tremendous supporters of our profession. So I think my, my final message would be one of gratitude um, for the, the sector that we work in, the profession that we we serve and for the people that give back to it. So thank you, Vincent, as well, for the opportunity to to join you today. Well, thank you. Thank you for those and for those parting comments. And with that, our gift of another Brain Trust Philanthropy powered by Vitreo has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you'll join us next month for our third episode of 2020 when we will be visiting with Kim Churches, CEO, the American Association of University Women, Melody Song, and Christian Mehta, Assistant Vice President Engagement at Ryerson University. Our topic, inclusion, diversity, equity, and access, IDEA. Until then, take care, and we look forward to talking with you soon. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta, Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.